glorious God, we have sung amazing words this morning as we do each morning as we sing of your praise that we are addressing you, the triune God of glory and of creation and of redemption and of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, our Savior who is returning in power and glory to execute your will on this earth and ultimately to make a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness alone is and dwells, and your people will dwell with you in eternal and joyful fellowship. I pray now as we consider this glorious reality of your resurrection, that you would take the truth and impress it upon our hearts, Holy Spirit. And in these few moments that we have, that you would take the glory of the resurrection and enlarge it in our mind and in our thinkings. And for those here who are yet outside of Christ, who don't yet know your saving grace, I pray that you would pound the stony heart with the truth of your word and that it would be broken even today and they would come to trust in you, the ever-living one. And for the rest of us who know and love you, that we would only be encouraged to remind, be reminded of all that you have done for us in your death and resurrection. We pray these things in the matchless name of Christ. Amen. Well, of course, we gather this day, this morning, and this particular time of the year to remember that great and glorious historical reality, and more importantly, that spiritual reality of Christ, the Son of God, who was raised from the dead by the power of the Father for our salvation. Let me begin, before we look briefly at some things we'll consider this morning in relation to the resurrection, against uh, first at the backdrop of the resurrection. It, it comes to us against the backdrop of another spiritual reality, and namely death. So the Bible has made clear that the wages of sin is death. In other words, what sin has earned from God is death, spiritual death, eternal death. God told Adam and Eve, the first man and woman in the garden, he told Adam specifically, in the day that you eat of the fruit of this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in that day you will die. And he ate and death came about. When we speak of death, we speak of something that is final, something that is absolute, something that is irreversible. And it produces then an insurmountable problem for humankind. Death is a reality that we all Face Death is something that we can't escape. Uh, the writer of Romans says this, the Apostle Paul, through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, therefore, all died. So that is something that everybody in this room is aware of, and everybody realizes that that day is coming. But it is against that reality that the reality of the resurrection stands in glorious truth. And the reality of the resurrection confronts or comforts all men. And when we speak of the resurrection, just as a reminder, we're we're speaking of the real, literal, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Namely, that the body that was laying in the grave is the same body that was raised up from that same grave three days later, never to experience death again in a body imperishable and alive. 
And the resurrection, as was already read and was already prayed this morning, is a central element to the Christian faith. If you remove the resurrection, then you have no Christianity, you have no gospel, you have no salvation, and you have no hope. And that's what we read this morning in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul said, if we have hoped in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Uh, We are rightly then called foolish and fools, if in fact Christ did not raise from the dead. If he did not, then everything is a farce. And even worse, about our own salvation, it would mean that Christ then is a liar. He was some delusioned uh, religious teacher who walked around in some visions of grandeur that in fact were not uh, the case, that were not reality. And that, of course, would be terrible, terrible, because it would mean then, as Paul said, that we are still in our sins. So the reality of the resurrection then is central to the gospel, it's central to God's saving work, it's central to everything that God did to accomplish our redemption and our salvation, and it is, in fact is central to human history. Whether you acknowledge it or not, it is the central reality of this creation that determines the end of all men and affirms God's purposes for this world. Now, all that said, I want to take just a few minutes this, mor- uh, this morning to consider some of the purposes of the resurrection. Now, when I originally had planned on addressing the purposes of the resurrection last week, uh, I told Ruth that we were going to have four purposes of the resurrection. However, as I sat down to consider the resurrection, I quickly got to 20 and had to stop. Uh, because there is so much that the Bible has to say about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and its significance to us. And so I obviously can't cover all of those this morning, and what we do cover will be ever so briefly. But I want you to travel with me, if you will, for a few moments and consider the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not only to the faith of those who have trusted Him, but its implications for all men. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to list, and we'll get through as many as we can. Obviously, we're going to leave plenty of time to hear the testimonies in the waters of baptism. You can follow along in the scriptures if you want to turn. I'll be looking at several of them, or I'll just read them. I would suggest, though, that as you write the points down, if you do, that you also write down the scriptures so that you might go back on your own and consider the significance of them. First, the first significance of the resurrection is this, that it confirms the truthfulness of Scripture. It confirms the truthfulness and the authority of Scripture. In Isaiah chapter 53, a chapter that we've been looking at quite a bit lately as we've walked through the Gospels, Isaiah 53, or the book of Isaiah, was written uh, nearly 700 years before the coming of Christ. And then chapter 53 is one of the most concentrated chapters in all of the Old Testament that is preparing for this servant who's going to come, this one who's going to come to die as a substitute for his people. And as he anticipates this one who is coming, he makes very clear that the one who's going to come is going to die uh, in place of his people, and it will be a real death. Just listen as I read some of the ways that he describes this. He says he will be a lamb that is led to slaughter. Slaughter obviously speaks of death and a violent one at that. He says he will be cut off from the land of the living. 
He says his grave will be assigned with wicked men and he was with a rich man in his death. He said that he would be poured out to death. In other words, his life is going to come to an end. Clearly, this one who's going to come is going to die. And yet he also says in the book of Isaiah, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. This is an anticipation that this one who's going to come is going to have a purposeful death. It's going to be for the sins of his people, but it's not going to be a death that is an end. In fact, this one who dies will also see the offspring of his people. He will prolong his days, and the good will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. In other words, he is going to die, and yet he will live. Psalm 1610, a psalm of David. This was written nearly a thousand years before Christ came. And David speaks of, in Psalm 16, his confident trust in the Lord who is at his right hand. In other words, his confidence is in the Lord who is with him and the Lord who will preserve him. He says in Psalm 169 that his flesh will dwell securely. He's speaking there of his flesh in this life. In other words, he can live confidently because of the Lord. But then he grounds this hope, this confidence that he has in something that looks beyond his immediate circumstances into the future. And he says this, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, in other words, to death, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. He says that in Psalm 1610. So while David has confidence that the Lord will preserve him in his particular situation from death, he's looking beyond that and saying his ultimate hope is in God's provision for him to say that death won't even be the end for him even when he does go to the grave. Which makes his statement all the more dramatic and all the more important. For David did die in the grave. You could go and see where David was buried. His body did undergo decay, and yet he has a hope here that looks beyond that. Your Holy One, he says, will not undergo decay. And this is exactly what Peter the Apostle proclaimed at the beginning of Acts. He said to the Jews that you put him to death, in other words, this Messiah, but God raised him up since it was impossible for him to be held by death. He later says, for David says of him, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. The Apostle Paul says the same thing after quoting Psalm 16.10. He says this, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. In other words, the resurrection of Christ affirms that everything that God had anticipated about this coming one would in fact take place. And it affirms then the prophetic word of God. Let me repeat what we read this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. This gives authority to the Word of God. So anybody that would want to discount the authority and the truthfulness of God's Word is refuted by the fact of the resurrection. Secondly, It validates the person of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Many teachers have come and gone. Many teachers of Jewish teachers, 
many teachers of the Greek or the Roman society, many teachers of cultures around the world. They came, they taught, and they died. And their bodies went into the grave, and they did decay, as David's did, and all bodies do. They, they rot and disappear. That has happened to every teacher. And if Jesus did not rise from the dead, there would be legitimate reason to group him in with all of those other teachers. There would be legitimate reason to say that he was a liar or he was a lunatic because he did in fact claim to speak for God. And not only did he claim to speak for God, but he claimed to speak as God. And if in fact he was not God and God the Son, then he was a liar. He was... Deluded, He had thoughts about himself that simply were not true. And it would have then been right for those Jewish leaders, as they wanted to many times, to pick up stones and to stone him. him. They would have been justified to do that because he was claiming something that was not true. Listen to what Jesus said. He claimed to have the power over life and death. John 5, 26, he said, For as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. In John chapter 10, he says this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So those are words that are either true or they're words that are not true. Earlier in chapter 2 of John, when the leaders wanted a sign from Jesus, he told them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. And of course they thought he was talking about the physical temple, Herod's temple. And of course Jesus could have done that if he wanted to. But John says that's not what he was talking about. He was talking about his, the temple of his body. He was speaking there of the resurrection. And later, after Jesus did rise, he tells us that the disciples believed the Scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. The point is this. If Jesus were to make these statements and stay in the grave, he was again little more than a deranged religious teacher. But in fact, he did not stay in the grave, but he rose from the dead, declaring that he is the Son of God. And this is exactly what Paul said in Romans 1-4 as he's declaring the gospel. He said the gospel is what was promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. He was declared the Son of God. He was declared the Son of God with power. And the resurrection is what ultimately sets God's seal of approval to that. Thirdly, it confirms His work. It confirms His atonement that it was completed and that it was accepted. It confirms the fact that when Jesus died on the cross, that that death was accepted as an atoning death. In other words, it was accepted as a death in the place of sinners. It was accepted as a death that satisfied God's wrath against sin, and so therefore he could forgive sinners. He says in Romans 4.25, He was delivered over because of our transgression and was raised because of our justification. That is to say that because of his resurrection, it shows that when Christ was on the cross, that God fully 
exhausted himself, God the Father, of the divine wrath against sin, and that what Christ absorbed in his body and in his very soul was enough. It was sufficient. And his resurrection then confirms that. In Philippians, it says it this way, Philippians chapter 2, that he suffered death, even death on a cross. In other words, the most cruel and torturous kind of human death. But then he says later, therefore, because of his obedience, because of his humble obedience to the Father, the Father, God, highly exalted him. Exalted him after the resurrection. Therefore, when we look at the cross and we consider the resurrection, it shows that there's nothing more to add to Christ's work of redemption. There's nothing more that can be added to it. It is accepted by the Father. Fourth, and I'm going to go rather quickly here. It exposes the sinfulness of men who refused and do refuse to believe. And the fact is that the historical reliability of the resurrection is really a mute point. Only those with the utmost deliberate ignorance could deny the historical reality of the resurrection. As a matter of fact, it's been shown countless times that those who set out to disprove the resurrection by looking at the facts, in fact, have either come all the way to faith or at least acknowledged that it is an historical reality. That it is something that is very reliable. There is the transformation of the apostles that went from unbelieving and fearful into those who were literally world changers, who went under amazing transformation of character because of their faith in the resurrection. There were thousands and thousands and thousands of people who placed their life and soul and even went to death because of their faith in this proclaimed resurrection. And these are people who were alive at the time, who were alive during that period, people who would have witnessed the events, and so on. The fact of the historical reliability of the resurrection is not in question, seriously. As a matter of fact, at the end of Matthew, he says that the Jewish leaders went to Pilate, and they, or they went to the Roman soldiers who were set there to guard the tomb, and they told them, or Matthew tells us, that they gave them a large sum of money and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And later he adds that this story was widely spread among the Jews as it is to this day. In other words, they could not deny the fact of the resurrection, and so they tried to cover it up with a false story. You say, that's amazing, and we would say, yes, it is, and it shows the hardness of the heart. In John chapter 11, when he raised Lazarus from the dead, some believed, but what did others do? They went and told the leaders, and they said, we got to do something about this guy because the whole world is going to go after him. You say, but if I saw somebody rise from the dead, if I could see it, if I could be there and have witnessed these events, then in fact, I would not be one of those unbelieving, and therefore that is an excuse for many to say that I will remain unbelieving because I did not witness it with my very eyes. Jesus has an answer for that. In Luke 16, he tells the story of a rich man and Lazarus. This rich man went to hell, essentially, and this poor man went to heaven, And this rich man is in a conversation with God. And while he is in torment and being in great suffering because of the intense heat and torment that he's in, he says to God, he says, says, no, he says, but if someone goes to them. So he's pleading with God and saying, will you send someone to warn my family? Because if somebody comes to them from the dead, then they will surely believe and they won't have to come from this place. 
As a matter of fact, he says, If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he, being God, said to them, him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if somebody rises from the dead. The issue then in denial of the resurrection is not that it is not a plainly obvious fact. It is that to deal with the implications of the resurrection confronts our sinfulness and calls us to repentance. And that is something that a sinner, apart from the work of the Spirit of God, does not want to do. Number five, it demonstrates the power of God who alone has authority over life and over death. We already read this in some passages earlier. Let me add to that. First uh, Samuel two six, a prayer of Hannah. She says this: The Lord kills and the Lord makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and He raises up. In other words, it is God alone who has the power of life and the power of death. And the resurrection authenticates this. Isaiah twenty five verses seven through eight. He says, And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe, away, wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth that the Lord has spoken. Revelation 21 tells us that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth that comes down out of heaven. The old, the first heaven and the first earth having passed away. And on this new heaven and earth, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. And there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Only the God who has power over life and death, the God who raised from the dead, has the power to do that. He is the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, who is sovereign over life and death. That's why Peter said it is impossible for death to hold him. It confirms, number six, that he has unlimited power over all creation. This I'll just read to you one verse. Philippians 3.21 He says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory, by the exertion of the power that He has to subject all things to Himself. The power of Christ in the resurrection affirms His power not only for His resurrection and the resurrection of all who are in Him, but also the transformation of even the entire universe. Number seven, the resurrection provides the foundation for Christian hope. Writing to Christians who are suffering, writing to Christians who are losing their loved ones, their friends, their families, writing to Christians who are soon even to lose their very own lives. This is how the Apostle Peter encourages them. This is how he encourages them to persevere. He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In other words, the Christian hope is not a wishy-washy hope. It is a hope that is certain and grounded because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Eight, it purchased the gift of regeneration. Regeneration is the new life that God gives to those for whom Christ died. Romans 6, 4-5 through says this, speaking of believers... 
Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection." Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. The resurrection purchased the life and spirit transforming power of God and regeneration. It purchased for us the power for believers to no longer be dominated by sin and to have fellowship with God. Number nine. It confirms the reality that death has been defeated. Do you realize that death is an enemy of men? Death is an enemy. Death is not part of God's creative intentions. Death is something that was an intruder. It entered in. That's why it's very unnatural when someone we love dies. Because it is a separation that God did not intend. It it, it hurts. There's a pain involved in that. There's a sadness involved with that. It is not the way God intended it. We have a natural passion to live because God created us to live, and yet death is our enemy. As Paul said, it is the last enemy that will be abolished. But Christ's resurrection has defeated that. Listen to his words. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, speaking of the body. This mortal must put on immortality, but then this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on the immortality. And then will come the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death is a defeated enemy for those who trust in Christ. For those who do not trust in Christ, death is an eternal enemy because it is what will be forever born. Let me mention just a couple more of these. It gives assurance, the resurrection number 10, to the present ministry of Christ to His people and confirms our seeking Him in prayer. Hebrews 4, 14 and other places. That we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us, but one who has been tempted and one who has passed through the heavens for us and appears in the, heavens of God, heaven, in the heavens for his people in the presence of God. Let me move on. Number 11. It confirms the certainty of Christ's return and God's judgment on the world. It confirms the certainty of Christ's judgment on the world. After preaching the gospel to philosophers at Athens, in Athens, Paul declares this sober reality. He says, therefore, in Acts 17, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all men everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. It is the resurrection then that leaves all men without excuse for not repenting and turning to Christ. 2 Thessalonians 1.7 says this, When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. So coming judgment is confirmed by the resurrection. No man, particularly no man who's heard the preaching of the gospel, will be able to stand before God and say, I did not have enough proof. God will point you to the resurrection along with other things. 
Number 12, it confirms the reality of heaven and hell. That hell is an eternal, physical, conscious suffering for eternity without end. And it confirms that heaven is eternal, physical, conscious joy of the redeemed. Daniel 12, 2 says this. May many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. He says in John 5, Jesus does, An hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth, those who did the good to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil to a resurrection of judgment. He's not affirming a works salvation there. He's saying those whose life manifested grace and transformation in Christ through a life that did good as measured by God and the fruit of those whose life was sin, they will go into eternal judgment. But there will be a resurrection. He affirms in Matthew 25 that these, the wicked, will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let me skip down. Number 15. I skipped over a few. It affirms that all that is done in this life for Christ is of eternal value. The reason that it's foolish to live for the things of this world is because they're passing away. They're empty. They ultimately have no value. They're they're going to end. It is only for the believer in Christ, it is only for the Christian that their life can really count for anything. And it doesn't matter how many monuments they build to your name when you die because one, you're dead, and secondly, even those monuments are going to go away. It is only the one who knows Christ that can have a life that matters at all. That's why he describes unbelievers as living in vanity. Their their life is but a vapor that appears for a little while and then goes away. It's like a flower that has glory, but then it passes off of the scene. It ultimately is of no account, though we live in these visions of grandeur fallen man does in our own minds. But that is confronted by the resurrection. It's confronted by the resurrection. And for believers, he can say this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. He says that in light of the resurrection. Number 16, it affirms the goodness of God in creation and the reality of the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 21, we already mentioned that. Let me go to the last one here before we look at baptisms. Number 17, The resurrection then confirms for us and confirms for all men the wisdom, the rightness, the goodness of losing all to gain Christ. It affirms for us the foolishness of finding your treasure and your security in this world. If the resurrection did not take place, then that would make sense. Live for all that you can. Pastor Rudin read it this morning in 1 Corinthians 15. If the resurrection isn't true, then please go, do whatever you want, fulfill all your lust, whatever those might be. But if the resurrection is true, and in fact it is, and because it is true, Christ is worth losing everything for. Listen to this. After preparing his disciples for the difficulties that were going to come on them because of their testimony of Christ... Jesus says this as an encouragement. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. In other words, 
choose your fears wisely. And don't abandon Christ and don't abandon your faith in Christ and your service to Christ out of fear of men because men are going to pass away. Rather, fear Him who is sovereign over life and death and even eternal destruction as well as eternal life. This is why Jesus said, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And his point there being that if you stand before God in all of His glory and you had chosen the things of this world instead of Christ, Christ simply was not compelling to you. He was simply not someone to grab your affections. Your sins were simply not that bad or you think somehow they're hidden from God. And then He transports us, us, Christ does, to the throne of God at the moment of judgment. And He says, if you're standing there, what does it all matter then? What do all the pleasures of this life matter then? What does all the sex, drugs, and rock and roll matter at that moment? What does all the security and the happy things that I sought mean then? They mean nothing. That's His point. That's His point. Because you will be resurrected. The grave is not the end, and you will stand before the Holy One and give an account for your life. And at that moment, you'd give everything. That's his point. And the resurrection proves this. Therefore, he says, the wiser exchange is to lose your life here that you might gain it forever. So the wisest are those who, by faith, have trusted in him, who have given their life to him, who have counted the cost, who have abandoned all to gain Christ, who live in this world in an anticipation of that day when they will be with their Lord forever in his presence, forgiven. And it says of believers that they will be in his presence blameless with great joy. Blameless with great joy. And that is precisely the reality behind each of the testimonies that we're going to hear uh, in just a moment. These are those who have counted the cost. These are those who have recognize the reality of the burden of their sin which is heavy on them and they have realized the incredible grace that has been extended to them in Christ and they have counted the cost they have abandoned everything and they have embraced Christ and they said come death come what may come what I have to suffer I will follow Christ and I will follow him to the grave which is for them only entrance into that glorious presence of the triune God father son and Holy Spirit, blameless with great joy. So I pray that you will consider those things. Everyone here, for believers, it's a tremendous time of encouragement. For those who know they're not truly believers, though they act like it, it is a time to re-examine your life. And for those who totally reject the gospel, it is a time for you, it is a mercy of God extended to you to consider, to consider the realities of the resurrection and the choices that you are making and what the end of them will be. Let me pray and then we'll have Pastor Rudin come out and we'll hear these testimonies. Father, we thank you for the glorious truth of the resurrection. It does stand at the center of human history and at the center of redemptive history. Saying that you are who you said you are. Sin is what you said it is. That we will live forever in bodies fit for our eternal destination. And so the resurrection stands as both a warning against unbelief. And it stands as a glorious testimony to the truth of all that you've accomplished in Christ for those who trust you and turn to you. I pray that you will use these testimonies and use your word to accomplish your good purposes in the life of each year. Bless these. Help them to be clear. Help us to listen with attentive ears. We commit this time to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.